Welcome, one and all, to Discovery, a Star Trek podcast by Fantastic Geek, your official, unofficial Star Trek Discovery podcast. My name is Matt, and joining me, as always, is Pete. Hello, Pete. We thank the great balance for replenishing the gift of life and warmth. Discovery, a Star Trek podcast by Fantastic Geek for short trek number three, The Brightest Star, comes to you now via forbidden Baul technology. And some fleet news before we arrive at this episode. Pete, a reminder, of course, that season two starts in January or what might happen, Pete? does CBS All Access implode like Praxis? And I'm just now realizing that rhymes. Um, Matt, we're, we're going to say it at the top and we're not going to belabor the point. CBS All Access was outright embarrassing last night. Yes, we have gotten Star Trek Discovery earlier than advertised. Most of the time it is run. But I'm guessing it's because of the Twitter screw-up for short trek number two, where their auto tweet fired at 9:30 in the morning, saying the episode is now up, it wasn't. Um, then they recorrected their procedure, thus resulting Matt in a posting time of approximately 10:05 p.m. Eastern Standard Time last night, thus preventing us from getting a podcast to you until now. So, like I said, uh, this is an embarrassment. This will not overshadow the tremendous product they've put out, but their delivery service, I'm going to use some coarse language here, Matt, cover your ears, sucks. Add to that the fact that there was apparently no one at the helm for either the All Access nor Star Trek Discovery Twitter feeds who could at least say something like, Oh no, the Klingons must have whatever to at least, you know, be be funny and diffuse the, 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 the situation in real time. But good news, Pete, I got in touch with CBS All Access customer service via email today, got a form response of five sentences. Good news, Pete, they strive to roll out updates on a regular basis. So they will be receiving a phone call from me on Monday. This is not what my subscription dollars are going towards. It's not. It's not what our patrons are paying for. It's not what our listeners uh, and fellow viewers are paying for. This needs to be corrected. But Matt, what PR problem? Indeed, as long as the PR department continues to say there is no PR problem, then I think they think things are okay. Pete, from this disaster, let's look ahead to the Discovery short trek, The Escape Artist, in less than one month's time, that is, if they release it on, maybe even on the right date, maybe they're going to think that threes are threes or nines now, and it's going to come out. Who who knows? Who knows, Pete? We we could have a Y two K esque situation, but en enough about the technical glitches. Let's talk about the talent. And I'd be lying if I said to you I am anticipating the um, Harry Mud. Uh, adventure the escape artist as much as I was the brightest star here with the Saru origin story but I'm still really looking forward to it and can't wait to see that and then two weeks later Matt we have brand new episodes 
Exciting stuff indeed, Pete. And before we look ahead, uh, let's give you a quick update on casting from the previous short trek. We had wondered if the voice of Zora uh, also portrayed her dancing version. IMDb now credits Annabelle Wallace as Zora and Sash Striga as Zora Hollow Dancer. So uh, two performers there. Hold me closer, Hollow Dancer. And now for our mission briefing. The episode's writers are Bo Yan Kim and Erica Lippolt. The episode is directed by Doug R. Neokoski. Yes, and I only wish Mr. R. Neokoski would okay my uh, Twitter uh, request. He keeps his settings to private. I'd love to congratulate him for this episode, Matt. Well, same here, Pete. Uh, If we've learned anything, though, in the last 48 hours, uh, say nice things on Twitter. So not to suggest that Mr. Arnie Okoski is uh, not saying nice things, but uh, maybe he's, you know, taking one step there to be a little bit more, uh, a little bit more calm, a little bit more concerted. Pete, with that, shall we head to the exterior lakeside with calm everywhere? Yes, birds chirping, animals chittering here on the shores of the pre-warp civilization of Kaminar. And Matt, Kelpians collect kelp. Yes, there was this moment where it's like, oh, okay, that's how it is there. Uh, Saru narrates that uh, he always looked up and saw hope. However, this is not how they, his people, his family were raised. They were raised for death and welcomed it. Still in the past, Saru seized his sister, who uh, does not get named for quite a while in this episode. Not complaining, just pointing it out. It's an interesting narrative thing. I was like, oh no, did I miss her name? No, just not quite yet. But uh, Pete, they're they're watching a pretty, well, to us, terrible uh, vision. Yes, uh, his sister awakes. They see uh, who we ultimately realize is their father uh, and priest, Aradar, uh, out there with the sacrificial Kelpians marching willingly towards death, this uh, triangular device there around a circle of rocks. Um, and we're told by Saru that they say when they take you, the pain of Vaharai stops. And that's going to be something we're going to analyze when we talk theories a little bit later what exactly is Vaharai the priests teach this and it's all about preserving the great balance of Kaminar and as this bellowing continues the uh, sacrificial Kelpians kneel their threat ganglia is a ganglion is a danglion and uh, the loud whirring and the light and then they're gone in a flash I certainly was not expecting as serene a death picture as we are presented here. Uh, I do suspect that we'll dig deeper into that in a bit. Uh, Sticking with the narrative, though, the the priest sighs and Saru tells his sister that impatience will not bring him back faster. Uh, And this is where the hymn is the priest. The priest is their father. Uh, And he is returned with a piece from the Baul ship. Uh, Aradar prays to thank the Great Balance, uh, which gives warmth and food, and uh, tells Saru to dispose of that Baul fragment. Yeah, you know, it fell off, as they sometimes do, 
which seemed unusual. Um, and Saru says he'll do it as soon as work is done. To keep it, of course, is forbidden. But nearly as forbidden, perhaps more, Matt, are the questions in the young Saru. Indeed, that fragment makes him wonder what is beyond the sky, uh, if there are those other than the Ba'ul. Again, this notion that the the predators are unseen here, but uh, Saru says the watchful eye does not allow for that. The balanced must not be upset. Uh, and Aradar says this is the way of things and it must not be questioned. Uh, and He's told that Saru presumably will understand that this is the way of things one day. Yes, upsets his father here. He pounds on the table. But the, the Ba'ul have to be sustained here. And it's those Kelpians that offer their lives uh, that does that. So uh, all seemingly uh, part of some grand design, or is it? Uh, Saru again in voiceover. Uh, interesting narrative technique. Not that necessarily a voiceover, but the fact that we kind of don't see where and when the story is being told, but Saruman voiceover says that he did not understand uh, that night. We see him take the bowel piece. He wants to ask more questions to explore the technology. Uh, he does that dismantling the machine. And uh, in a montage, we see him searching for answers as he tries to send out a message. Yes. Uh, a hello there that he uh, sends out. Hopefully somebody will hear it. We cut today. His sister is cutting flowers. He watches an insect back to night again. His dad's got a hot hand and a dice game, baby girl. And then Saru, as his father is distracted, steals in again and checks the device. Still no answer there. Would it come? Would it come too late for him, Matt? Back to the day. Um, but... It's later on that he gets a little uh, notice as he's fixing a net that night. He's received a hello. And uh, later, Saru asks what would happen if he was chosen. Uh, this, of course, being chosen as part of that, uh, that ceremony, being chosen by the Ba'ul. Uh, his father notes the honor of being chosen. Saru wanted more out of life. He did not want to wait to be taken. And uh, Saru writes a message, uh, recording it from the machine, which also was this kind of interesting thing he's learning, I think we're meant to assume, and uh, the message reads, today. Again at night, this time out with his sister, Sarana, um, Saru talks about how father would not approve them wandering so far from the pack, which is an interesting dynamic instead of village or whatever we might have called it um his sister says her senses agree and uh that she's got this unsettling urge to uh to run back to safety uh but saru tells her that uh he's gonna look at the stars for a while she replies that there is beauty in looking down which we will doubtless discuss in a bit uh, she now gone, Saru hears two pops out of the atmosphere, a flying vessel arrives, I think we quickly can tell that it is a shuttle, even though there's lights pointed towards the camera, Pete, you know, like JJ does, uh, but I kid, of course, uh, it's, it's a shuttle of the reveal, SHN-03, 
uh, which is the first clue that uh, this, well, <laughs> this might be a familiar face. Uh, and indeed it is. Pete, my note's originally saying Captain Giorgio has come to save him. We'll learn a bit later in the scene. Here she is a lieutenant. Yes, using her communicator to translate. Pleasure to finally uh, put a face with a name and a, a new face at that, Matt. Um, and uh, she calls him Mr. Saru from the start. I love it that we've already got that formal Star Trek, you know, future captain to uh, future officer feel in their first interaction. And uh, he was not certain she would come, but that he had contacted Starfleet with technology that did not belong to his species, stolen from the bow um, and turned it into a beacon he is a Kelpian. He's the first ever to show this ingenuity to manipulate advanced technology. And then she explains in this really, really well-written bit of dialogue here, explains in his terms that he won't be able to return home. We know this is because of the Prime Directive, the, the nature of General Order 1, all the particulars there, but again, kind of presented to him in a in a you know, somewhat simplified version. So will he leave? He looks over his home and decides that his place is no longer here. Yeah, that it was difficult enough to convince Starfleet to make an exception for him, that it's not every day they hear from a member of a pre-warp society, these complicated rules, and he knows he's got to go with her to the stars. The conclusion of this episode Hope was stronger than fear, and he wanted that hope. Well, Pete, we have an incoming threat analysis. Where should we start? One would think, Matt, we would be talking about the Ba'ul, but they never appear. Other than Georgiou mentioning them, I'm not sure they do. I'm going to begin a little closer to home. I'm going to begin with the threat of Dad Aradar. Certainly there's a dogmatic dedication to the status quo that we see from Aradar. And if nothing else, that is the most villainous uh, mindset of the episode. Uh, I think that we can theorize in a little bit more about the Ba'ul. Uh, I think that it's as we've said for these these prior short treks, I think that the absence of the bowel here is a bonus in what again is a very well presented short trek. Mm -hmm. You know, we're the farthest thing in the world from. Oh no, you're trapped in your quarters and you can't leave because space flew. You know, it's not that kind of trapped in a phone booth mentality here. But the absence of the bowel, I think. It is a writing strength that Kim and Lippolt really lean into in terms of finding not the other, which is the the most immediate source of, of danger in this episode. It is the self. It is the, the group. It is the herd. And the slavish dedication to this, that the father won't even entertain any questions from a curious son. There are more comforting ways to do with it and, and clearly, um, Saru and his father do not have this bond, the one that exists between 
brother and sister in Saru and Sarana. What interesting word choice you have, because I couldn't help but watch uh, this episode, the short trek in in general, but certainly kind of the the intersection of religion and uh, society that we see with Aradar here. I couldn't help but think of this country's history with slavery, particularly the the notion in uh, certainly the 19th century, probably the 18th as well, but the notion that hey, good news, enslaved folk. Uh, this is so you get your get your suffering in life now, so you go to heaven in the afterlife. Um, and that kind of twisting of religion into this, this thing that I dare say it was not meant to be. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, you know, this is a, this is a, a brief offering, 16 or so minutes, um, but a lot of depth to it, a lot of depth. I'll do one even further, Matt, when it comes to Aradar, other than his priestly duties and the sternness he shows towards his son, no dialogue with the sister whatsoever. What's the only other character affectation we get? He gambles. And this is a biblical illusion in terms of uh, the gambling that went on in the temple uh, in the Bible. I mean, a, a great catch. My mind had not gone immediately there, but of course I can't argue with it. And, uh, you know, again, I find myself marveling at these short treks that it would have been so easy to do 15 minutes of run them and gun them, or it could have been 15 minutes of, you know, trapped in the, the hollow phone booth, you know, insert your small set, your easy story here. Uh, but instead these are big stories and uh, there's just tons of richness in them. Well, Pete, we have on our long range sensors, some theory talk. Uh, I know I got a ton of meaning and interpretation out of this episode, but where would you like to start? So we swerved where we thought the Baul would be the threat, never appearing here. Completely agree with the stylistic choice to not show them at this point. I have to wonder if we'll return to them during the series proper. Um, but it almost seems too easy, the, the A to B, that the Kelpians sacrifice themselves. They sustain the Baul. They are their food Matt, does it have to be that they're eating them? Does it have to be that they're dead? Um, could they be bringing them elsewhere? Are they really benevolent and friendly? And these Kelpian, uh, you know, sacrificial lambs are chosen and they're uh, elsewhere in the stars, safely stowed? I think these are great questions. And again, you know, looking in the looking in the glass of this episode, it becomes uh, a mirror, perhaps not of me in particular, but I can only kind of reflect upon the American experience. You mentioning it being benevolent, my mind immediately went to the efforts uh, to uh, quote-unquote bring civilization to Native Americans. You know, hey, we're going to yank these kids out of the tribes. We're going to put them into schooling. Uh, I don't doubt that there was a sincerity on the on the part of the Americans doing that to give, uh, you know, shelter and heating and uh, 
language, written language and things of that sort to this, you know, to, to these quote unquote lesser people. Um, that's where my mind goes. Now, could there easily be a story in season two or beyond where, no, actually it's, you know, heaven on earth that the sacrifice go to and it's, it's legit the sweet life. That's, that's possible too. Um, and it's to the credit of the episode that we could have this awful kind of, you know, uh, removal from culture or this elevation of life. Look no further than the recent uh, incident, Matt. I don't remember where it was in the Far East with the missionary who was killed going to an island by uh, the, the natives with arrows. And I mean, what? what a timely example it is my mind had gone to the same to the same spot there uh yeah that that guy killed uh, in, in a small island uh somewhere off the coast of the indian subcontinent there this uh, a tribe that has uh rejected contact and is, is one of these you know tri- tribes living outside the modern world and what did he get for it he got you know in his attempts to bring religion uh, he died. I doubt there's been any substantial impact on their culture. And the, the kind of larger global concern is just letting these people live their life as they've had it to not ruin it by modern, the modern world. This subject of Vahari that is men- mentioned twice, first the pain of it, that the pain of it vanishes once you're taken away by the Ba'ul. And secondly, this uh, concept that Saru asks his father if he was to reach Vahari. What is Vahari, Matt? I read it as as heaven. I read it as this, you know, the, the, the struggles in this world are worth it when you reach the next world. Uh, I, I didn't see much beyond that. What I did find so interesting was this notion if it is going to be a heaven and if we do have this intersection as i said before of religion and society what we have in saru i think for for many of us who might be like-minded in a in a less dogmatic approach to the world you can see something aspirational in him but i think others might see a potentially negative message although i want to stress that i, I don't see it as a negative message he is someone who looks at the the religious structure of things and ultimately rejects it completely. The the social structure intertwined with religion, he rejects that completely. And I think that you know, we can look at some of the extremes of the major religions and say, well that's easy. Or you look at some of the terrible regimes in the world and say, of course you want to escape that. But Saru's logic can apply to to, to any of us, I suppose, if you sit and say this set of rules that we live by, whether it's uh, determining how you, you know, how you accept orientation or gender or just basic values, he's willing to reject all of that. Now, we know, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, he's rejecting it for Star Trek values, and those are supposed to be the, the open-minded sort of values, but Saru's a bit of a firebrand, certainly when it comes to the perspective of of uh, of the kelpians can i propose what vahari might be absolutely is it puberty 
maybe i mean i guess that would then that would then add different meaning to the notion of their father certainly in terms of the uh, you know reaching maturity and being able to reproduce but i mean father is just a term pa- father could be a term uh taken from the natural and 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 put upon this you know dare say unnatural existence if they are indeed in this kind of premature state again pete i look into this episode and you know we can talk about whether it's i think of the 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 amish and how some reject that life and enter the enter the the modern world as you mentioned this tribe out off the coast of india uh whether it's just kind of accepting or not world religion social conventions there's there's so much depth to this episode and i think of fun star trek episodes like a piece of the action everyone loves a piece of the action what comment does that episode say about the world uh be careful that you don't leave your stuff lying around maybe (laughs) maybe it's about cultural cross-contamination but really it's about uh these guys are gonna have fun in 1930s about gangs man yeah. I mean sure I mean look there's meaning to be extracted from piece yeah. of the action but what's it what is its purpose its purpose is meant to be a good old fun time where our three heroes play dress up and do all that they do a 1930s gangster movie that's their adventure at the end they beam up and say the end this little 15 minute offering given to us you know quote unquote on the side what is it asking of us to reflect on religion, society, cultural hierarchy. I mean, it's 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 stunning. Could Vahari be some kind of size or other attribute, you know, kind of similar to a fish? You got to throw it back if it's not a certain size in terms of a Kelpian. I think it is interesting that the episode does not make clear what the choosing process is. And I want to be clear that I'm not complaining about that. I think that, again, particularly in, you know, hey, write us a 15-page script that comes in under X budget. Uh, I think you need to play into the perceived weaknesses versus, hey, uh, unlimited budget and, you know, unlimited runtime. But just the notion that we don't know what the criteria are, is it... People are starting it's starting to get out of line. You know, is it thought police? Is it, as you say, some sort of uh, maturing process? Is it that, hey, this one has the best looking ham hocks on him or her. Let, let's send them on up to, the, to the, the butcher shop. You know, it's kind of all and none at the same time in a really rewarding way. Why does bowel technology fall apart? I... I'm reminded, Pete, of a of a, a bit of wisdom that I bring up from time to time on the podcasts. It, a piece of wisdom from the podcast, uh, Ron Moore's podcast for Battlestar Galactica. And uh, his statement was this. You can show the hand of the writer every so often and the audience will accept it because they know they're watching something that's not true. The trick is to just not show it too much. Why does Baul technology fall off? Because something needs to change Saru from his trajectory of, huh, I wish life was different. Well, it isn't. Off to go get night, night blooming flowers. Huh? I wonder what's up there in the stars. I don't know. I'm down here. And to, to kind of have time wear that away from him. By old technology falls off because Saru needs something to interact with the larger 
uh, galaxy. I get it. I'm wondering if there's a larger design at play back with what my theory might be about the bowel. Is it uh, that they drop these things off to see if any of the Kelpians that they don't select yet, that they're taking to a, a benevolent, bright, shiny future, maybe have the right stuff to manipulate it? I like the affirmational perspective that you've given let me twist it back around. Maybe it's a test to make sure that none of them have the wrong stuff, that none of them get too smart, that none of them, you know, again, to return to 19th century America, you know, let's make sure that the slaves can't read because, oh my goodness, then that, you know, if they can read, then they'll think and they'll expand and grow and, and all that. Maybe it's a test of the worst sort. And maybe Lieutenant Georgiou came in and swooped him up, you know, uh, a day before the, his bowel ticket came up or before the thought police came and made him disappear, that kind of thing. Are you implying Saru the next day was going to have bowel discomfort? <laughs> uh, Pete, again, not knowing what the, what the, the all seeing eye with its, with its uh, determinations, how that might work. Uh, <laughs> wordplay aside. Yeah. That might've been in his future. He might've been, Part of the reason that the that that uh, Georgiou might have told him today might have been because they figured out tomorrow he was uh, you know he was on the menu to to serve Kelpie and Pete. It's a cookbook. Speaking of the menu, Matt, I don't think there would have been a more interesting time to tell this story the way that they told this story when we consider that Saru. Uh, narrating this conceivably has been to the mirror universe now. Um, he's encountered none of his uh, fellow species since he has uh, joined Starfleet. He gets to the Mirror Universe. He asks Burnham if there are any. She has to be untruthful to him because of the painful uh, knowledge that they are eaten. Eaten by whom? Well, by her and Emperor Georgiou. Um and that Georgiou was the first person he ever met and how painful it must be in retrospect. The first human face I ever saw is now the face of this mirror universe emperor who, oh yeah, is now a member of Starfleet and Section 31. I mean, excellent note that you've made there. And again, kudos to, to the writers for... Uh, again, out of this little story, gaining these drops of characterization that can let us color their interactions in the past. And also, you know, not for nothing, Pete, I think we're going to see Georgiou in the second season, if if only because it's what? been shown in the, uh, in, in the, the uh, previews and whatnot. But yeah, now we do get to reassess that whole interaction. You know, she now in certainly not a literal sense, but not far from it. She, a mother figure to him, you know, kind of the, the, the redemptive mother here delivering him into a new world. Um, and then now this, this source in the mirror version of her, the source of betrayal, it just adds to the richness of all these characters. Was it too much in terms of the, uh, the small world, uh, syndrome that it was Georgiou who made first contact. 
Um, you know, I hadn't considered that until now. I suppose the most fair answer might be maybe. Now that said, we certainly have the sense in the Star Trek universe of people continuing to kind of, you know, the crew being kept together. Now is that an outgrowth of, uh, you know, we want to keep the classic crew together for all these movies, and then we want to keep the next generation crew together for all these movies, and so on and so forth. Sure, but, I mean, we see that in the real world, too, you know, where it's, you know, that, that leadership team that started the company in the garage or whatever it might be that, that you know, that they kind of stay together. I I was okay with it, I think, because of that. Because the character benefits, they outweigh the well, wait a minute, this is a fake story and that may call attention to it. As long as we don't find out that Saru also built C-3PO, I think we're going to be okay. <laughs> um, the the other thing I think that, again, in retrospect, builds so beautifully. So we've seen Saru on a first contact mission with the Povins in season one, and he tells them he is a first contact specialist. How beautiful that he himself was found on first contact and remains the only species, the only member of his species in Starfleet. So who better to reach out to other species than somebody who had been naturalized through it? I agree, but, but I feel like we see, certainly in my, in my memory, we see for the first time the downside of perhaps not first contact, but the downside of the prime directive in that generally before this episode, it's been presented as, uh, again, kind of as this aspirational thing. Like when you reach warp readiness, then you can join the community of the galaxy and there might be rough times ahead, but you know, you join that, that community and, you know, we know that the Federation gets formed as a result of, uh, Earth joining the the galactic community and things of that sort, but here we see the flip side, which is, I think that by our social mores, by the social mores of the twenty third century, what's going on in Kaminar is pretty horrific. You know, this isn't just raising animals for slaughter. This is raising sentient, intelligent, capable animals and keeping them in a in a cage of sorts. Uh, for, as best as we can assume, taking Saru at his knowledge and his word, uh, to, to be mere food, for the Federation to stand by and know that there is this injustice, you know, takes a little of the shine off the Prime Directive. I know what the response is. Well, they have to reach this point where they, you know, we can be involved and we don't want to have the ruining of culture as as has been a concern in Star Trek and as as recently as this... This gentleman who died trying to contaminate the culture of that that island community in India uh, found out found out the negatives of it. But you know, this is not quite Starfleet to save the day for the embitterment of society. We got to hear the Kelpian tongue for the first time, and I think the decision to go with the translator. Um, obviously, it's a writerly. Uh, situation, but that they had to come up with the the language here, at least a little bit of it, um, again, furthers that richness that Star Trek is known for, particularly when it comes to language. Oh, absolutely. And I, 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 I certainly noticed 
the use of the language, but I think that it was so kind of quintessentially Star Trek that it wasn't it wasn't kind of this big moment of oh my goodness it's a it's a weird alien tongue and oh my goodness they're they're using the universal translator in this kind of live moment you know that's something of course that we saw in the first half of season one uh, done to to wonderful effect and um, I don't know it was just it, it really was this great Star Trek moment though technology communication alien languages strange new worlds the whole nine yards and then the subject of return matt told by george these many years before no return possible but will we get to see saru ultimately return to kaminar i think that it's a story point that could get used down the line do i at this stage expect that that surprise surprise they already did a season two episode that does that and uh you know then they went and did the short track and said oh this will be a great introduction to it it's possible my gut says no because i feel like there's such a tender difficult story that gets told here that we we might not want to return to that tenderness too quickly that said pete what we're a month away from new episodes and that's going to run for 13 weeks so you know see where i'm at in I don't know, 15, 16 weeks, and the episode count is dwindling down. I might be saying, yes, bring us back to Kaminar. Well, Matt, we don't need to return to Kaminar because we have Starfleet. We have the best people possible keeping Fantastic Geek uh, running away from home. Absolutely, we do, particularly as we draw to the close of the calendar year here and some of our annual costs accrue, what for the storage and the bandwidth and the, the subspace network, etc. Uh, it's so appreciated to know that people go to patreon.com slash fantasticgeek to help our good ship, Fantastic Geek, afloat up there in the stars. Everybody who contributes gets access to exclusive podcast content, and there's all sorts of levels from there. You can choose the bowel uh, broken technology uh, level where we will mail you old devices, and you can contact us through them. With that, let's go to Hailing Frequencies. Hailing Frequencies open, sir. To the Twitter machine we go, Pete. Uh, some certainly enthusiastic feedback for this episode. Uh, Ryan Triddle says, Oh my great bird, the new short trek is stellar. Doug Jones is fantastic. Uh, congrats to the writers on a well-written look at Saru's background. Hope is indeed stronger than fear. Hashtag OMGB. And then hashtag Star Trek and Star Trek Discovery. Uh, another tweet. Uh, the brightest star on Star Trek CBS was thought-provoking and terrific. Thanks so much for exploring both Saru's backstory and unique prime directive conundrum. Can't wait for more, which is good peak because the next one's less than uh, a month away. And uh, last tweet from me, this from uh, Remco Stadhowers. Uh, that's at Rem Stadhowers. Wow, that was such a cool episode. Also, how exciting to see Philippa Giorgio again. Great job on every aspect of this short treks. P.S. Love the kelp. <laughs> Sean Pullen, that's at Sean Pullen, the number one, writes, just finished watching. Amazing. I leaned in, lent in, question mark, the whole time. Adds so much depth a completely new facet to Saru's character slash story. 
want to say more but don't want to spoil, I could watch a Saru-centric spinoff after tonight. Well, Pete, in order to make all the whoozy whatsies go on all access, it might come to that. Jason Hollowood, that's at Nushmut, <laughs> N-U-S-H-M-U-T, writes, Finally, what a shame that this lovely piece of at Star Trek CBS, hashtag Star Trek Discovery, had to be marred by the continued unprofessional incompetence of at CBS All Access, which does not seem to care about doing right by its paying viewers. Well, here, here, and uh, it is sometimes difficult, Pete, to separate the wheat from the chaff, but uh, I guess that's what we have to do, focusing here on the, the story, the acting, the visual presentation, and not the medium with which it was uh, rather poorly released. We also have a review, Matt, to our uh, feed on iTunes. Uh, it's from Strexter. Uh, and the headline is Thoughtful Analysis, five stars. And it reads, I look forward to listening to Matt and Pete's cast while I'm watching each episode. And I've definitely been in withdrawal since Disco's first season ended last winter. Luckily, the short treks have started, but they've also whetted my appetite for more. I've listened to many different podcasts, but none of them address the practical and business aspects of putting together a telecast the way that they do. Never dry, always entertaining, and two guys who work extremely well together. Give them a listen. Well, thank you for those kind words there. And uh, to me, it is critical to look both within the story and outside the story for uh, when you analyze just about any episode of television, because if they had more money, they would do things differently. If they had more time, they'd do things differently. If everything was infinite, you know, the question is always this, Pete, would it be a better story? I mean, you know, expand this episode out to a 50-minute episode. I don't know. I mean, what, we get less montage and more actual Saru taking things apart? Well, it doesn't get better there. Uh, we get more... Uh, texting between him and Georgiou where he learns her name and rank there and not in the kind of triumphant reveal as the savior comes down from the stars and reveals herself. Well, no, that kind of ruins the climax. So they they wrote this episode to the size of the constraints and made it great, not, not you know, sat there and said, this is an ideal 16-minute episode and it can't be anything different because my own muse came down in the shuttle and whispered it in my ear. No, it was constructed as a business thing and an art thing and an, and an output thing as much as being this living, breathing story uh, inside the, the, the four walls of the script, if you will. Couldn't agree more. Are you ready to give away a copy of Star Trek Discovery Season 1 on Blu-ray? Well, Pete, we've had that list of names. I know you have them all in the uh, the, the uh, non-literal hopper there. I know you have them all in a container of some sort, whether it's a hat or a barrel or a tube. Pete, are you ready to pull a name out of the old uh, the old dispenser of names? I am. Between the reviews, your likes of our Facebook page, your shares of our Facebook page, your follows, your uh, retweets, uh, we had over 12,500 
individual entries. And I'm ready to pull one out of the old hopper here. Who's it going to be, Pete? Who's it going to be? Show me Brenda Harmon. Congratulations there, Brenda. And uh, we'll certainly be in touch, if not vice versa, to get you your uh, your copy of Star Trek Discovery Season 1 on Blu-ray. I laugh, Pete, because uh, once that disc is in hand, it can't let you down. It cannot. And it is stunning to watch. Yes, that... Uh... Pete, I'm still a little, uh, still a little bothered by the notion that uh, we don't get to stream these episodes at full HD, at least in these United States. I, I don't know about our Netflix brethren, but Pete, enough uh, negativity. We're going to look to the stars. We're going to look for hope. I know that we will be talking Star Trek Discovery again in early January as we uh, hit that final short trek and get ready for season two. And uh, it's. It's just such a delight to be talking Star Trek again. Absolutely. Can't wait to check out the second season here and mull it all over with you, Matt, and with our listeners. That certainly is what is up next to those listening on the uh, Discovery podcast feed. If you're listening to us in the Pop Culture podcast feed, my goodness, Pete, we have a busy rest of the month. Uh, I know... Pete, I know Runaways is December 21st, but we have stuff before that. I'm not quite sure the order it's all going to come out. I know that there's Once Upon a Deadpool that's on our radar. There's, uh, what am I missing, Pete? Aquaman. Aquaman, of course. Pete, oh man, I'm like, am I, do I have a, do I have a DC bias? I don't know, Pete, but all of that in the mix in the next couple of weeks. Uh, Aquaman, Deadpool, uh, we'll be doing a, uh, a separate mini episode, I think, to help explain our thought process on Once Upon a Deadpool and why ultimately it is a good idea to be uh, to be put out there in the marketplace. But Pete, that is for another podcast. Have to mention, of course, the God Friended Me podcast returning in a couple days as well as that series comes off a whopping one week off and uh, probably two more for this, uh, for this month before it goes away for at least a little while. All of it, Pete, part of the Fantastic Geek per family of podcasts absolutely our joy to bring them all to you pete how can people be in touch with you to talk about kaminari kelp to talk about facebook updates on god friend of me to talk about aquaman is he gonna find kelp is aquaman <laughs> in kaminar is it really all connected how can people be in touch with you you can find me on twitter at peter p-i-e-t-e-r-j k-e-t-e-l-a-a-r 10,232 followers can't be wrong and while i'm personally on twitter as looking back loss do be in touch with the podcast visit fantasticgeek.com uh check us out on twitter instagram and gmail where we are fantastic geek as well but wait pete there's more facebook.com slash fantastic geek with the ph all one word like it today well as mentioned pete we will be talking more star trek in the new year and uh more pop culture in the coming days on the pop culture podcast feed with that pete I will say adios to all our listeners and give you the final brightest star word. I saw hope in the stars. It was stronger than fear. And I went toward it. <laughs>